Battle Hymn of the Republic is probably the best known song from the Civil War in terms of kind of the rousing patriotic songs and fight songs and so on. But as far as what song was probably the most popular amongst the troops and even the general public during the war, it was probably a different song, a more upbeat song, Battle Cry of Freedom. The lyrics and music of which were composed by George F. Root in the summer of 1862, inspired by Lincoln's call for more volunteers at the time. Like Julia Ward Howe's composing of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Root wrote this song very quickly in a fit of inspiration. The song was first publicly performed on July 24, 1862, and sheet music of it began being printed and sold that fall, and they sold like the proverbial hotcakes. Ultimately, over half a million copies of the sheet music would be printed, and so maybe you could say this song was the Johnny Get Your Gun Over There or the America Fuck Yeah and We'll Put a Boot in Your Ass It's the American Way of its era. The song was so catchy and popular that even the Confederates liked it, and they took it and made their own version of it, basically giving it a kind of non-humorous, non-parody Weird Al treatment, and the result was actually quite mundane, kind of a generic patriotic fight song, even more generic than the original Battle Cry of Freedom. So here are the original lyrics to the song that Root penned in 1862. Yes, we'll rally round the flag, boys, we'll rally once again shouting the battle cry of freedom. We will rally from the hillside, we'll gather from the plain, shouting the battle cry of freedom. The Union forever, hurrah, boys, hurrah, down with the traitors, up with the stars. While we rally round the flag, boys, we rally once again, shouting the battle cry of freedom. We are springing to the call of our brothers gone before, shouting the battle cry of freedom. And we'll fill our vacant ranks with a million freemen more, shouting the battle cry of freedom. We will welcome to our numbers the loyal, true, and brave, shouting the battle cry of freedom. And although they may be poor, not a man shall be a slave, shouting the battle cry of freedom. So we're springing to the call from the east and from the west, shouting the battle cry of freedom. And we'll hurl the rebel crew from the land we love best, shouting the battle cry of freedom. And while it was subtle, and a lot more subtle in this regard than Battle Hymn of the Republic, there clearly are a few little pieces in there that mention, at least implied, the freeing of slaves as being a goal of the Union war effort. And like Battle Hymn of the Republic, Battle Cry of Freedom was in many ways ahead of the Lincoln administration in making that argument. In fact, Lincoln spent close to a year and a half of the war going out of his way to deny that freeing of slaves was a war aim of his at all. Well, like I said, Battle Cry of Freedom was so catchy, I suppose it must have been a great marching song if you had to be out there tromping around 10 miles a day or more. You want an upbeat, catchy tune to march to. Well, like I said, even the Confederates made a version of it for themselves, and here are the Confederate lyrics, at least one version. I think there might be more than one Confederate versions of their take on Battle Cry of Freedom. Our flag is proudly floating on the land and on the main. Shout, shout the Battle Cry of Freedom. Beneath it oft we've conquered, and we'll conquer oft again. Shout, shout the Battle Cry of Freedom. Our Dixie forever, she's never at a loss. Down with the eagle and up with the cross. We'll rally round the bonnie flag, we'll rally once again. Shout, shout the battle cry of freedom. 
Our gallant boys have marched to the rolling of the drums. Shout, shout the battle cry of freedom. And the leaders in charge cry out, come boys, come. Shout, shout the battle cry of freedom. They have laid down their lives on the bloody battlefield. Shout, shout the battle cry of freedom. Their motto is resistance, to the tyrants never yield. Shout, shout the battle cry of freedom. While our boys have responded and to the fields have gone. Shout, shout the battle cry of freedom. Our noble women also have aided them at home. Shout, shout the battle cry of freedom. Isn't that nice they even worked in the ladies? Now the fact that both sides could unironically, in their perception of it, sing basically the same song with just a few lyrical differences, shows you part of the really problematic nature of this conflict, something that I'm going to get into when I do an episode in the future, looking at the motivations and beliefs of both sides, including the soldiers themselves, to the degree that we can get a window into what they were thinking. But for now, I'll just point out that many of the rank-and-file soldiers on both sides of this war sincerely believed They were fighting for freedom, and both sides believed they were fighting to uphold the legacy of the American Revolution. And again, we'll look into the details of this at some point in a future episode, but just in case you're not sure what the tune of this song was, I've got an instrumental version I'll share with you. Either version of the lyrics, Union or Confederate, would be sung to this tune. Hi, everybody. This is CJ, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar, warrior, and renaissance man. In this new and very interesting dark age in which we find ourselves back with another diabolical dose of dangerous history. This is episode 134 of the DHP. This is going to be part four of our coverage of the not-so-civil war. But before we jump into the rest of the episode, I've got some awesome individuals to thank Some great folks who have stepped up to support the show on an ongoing basis via Patreon. So big thanks go out to Kevin, Alex, Sam, another Kevin, Zach, Aaron, Jaron, and Joshua. Thank you all very much for stepping up to help support the show over at patreon.com slash profcj. And as always, a reminder to those of you who are not already Patreon supporters of this show, If you sign up to support this podcast with a donation of a dollar per episode, and more is certainly more than appreciated, but for just a dollar per episode minimum, you'll have access to special bonus episodes there, as well as the ability to join, if you so desire, the private Facebook group for Patreon supporters of this show. And I am planning on doing at least a couple of bonus episodes in the next month or two that tie into the Not-So-Civil War series, so... Look for those to be coming out. 
I'll probably get at least one done in February. And for sure, I'm going to be doing one on the naval aspect of the war, including the Union blockade, the Confederate cotton embargo, and also the ways that the South tried to cope with the hardships that resulted both from their self-imposed embargo as well as from the Union blockade. So should be pretty interesting. Look for it to be coming out sometime during February. And then I've got a few other ideas for Patreon bonus episodes related to the current series as well. Also, I've got to thank a few people for getting me some things off of my Amazon wish list. So thanks to Jacob for a very interesting book, The Craftsman by Richard Sennett, which I'm very much looking forward to reading. And to James for another book I'm very interested in reading when this whole Civil War business is behind us, of course. And that is The First Emperor of China by Jonathan Clements. I've always been fascinated by Chinese history and want to do more of it on here eventually. And one of the things I definitely want to cover is the story of China's first emperor. So this is a book I should find very useful for that. Now, launching back into this episode, I'm going to read you two letters from August of 1862. The first is from New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley to Abraham Lincoln, a letter that was also published in the Tribune. And the second is going to be Lincoln's letter in response. So first we have Horace Greeley's The Prayer of the Twenty Millions, dated August 19th, 1862. And it's a very long letter. I'm actually chopping it down a bit, and it's still pretty long. So, to Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States. Dear Sir, I do not intrude to tell you, for you must know already, that a great proportion of those who triumphed in your election, and of all who desire the unqualified suppression of the rebellion, now desolating our country, are sorely disappointed and deeply pained by the policy you seem to be pursuing with regard to the slaves of the rebels. We think you are strangely and disastrously remiss in the discharge of your official and imperative duty with regard to the emancipating provisions of the new Confiscation Act. Side note, this law that he's referring to was the Confiscation Act of 1862, which had been passed in mid-July. It contained provisions for confiscating property, including slaves, from Southerners who supported the Confederacy. It would be the main legislative basis on which Lincoln would later issue his Emancipation Proclamation. It also, by the way, called for death or imprisonment for those who actively supported the Confederacy and was mostly intended to target Confederate military officers as well as government officials with that. Perhaps even more interestingly, the law authorized the president, quote, to employ as many persons of African descent as he may deem necessary and proper for the suppression of this rebellion. And for this purpose, he may organize and use them in such manner as he may judge best for the public welfare, end quote. This same Confiscation Act also called for the U.S. government to encourage Africans, those of African descent, to leave the United States, saying, quote, the President of the United States is hereby authorized to make provision for the transportation, colonization, and settlement in some tropical country beyond the limits of the United States of such persons of the African race, made free by the provisions of this act, as may be willing to emigrate, having first obtained the consent of the government of said country for their protection and settlement within the same, with all the rights and privileges of freemen." 
And for the rest of his life, Lincoln was intensely supportive of the idea of colonization, which basically meant attempting to get as many Africans to leave the U.S. as possible. He didn't like slavery, but he also didn't like the idea of blacks and whites living side by side on terms of legal equality. Anyway, back to Horace Greeley's letter. Those provisions were designed to fight slavery with liberty. They prescribe that men loyal to the Union and willing to shed their blood in her behalf shall no longer be held with the nation's consent in bondage to persistent malignant traitors who for 20 years have been plotting and for 16 months have been fighting to divide and destroy our country. Why these traitors should be treated with tenderness by you to the prejudice of the dearest rights of loyal men we cannot conceive. We think you are unduly influenced by the counsels, the representations, the menaces of certain fossil politicians hailing from the border slave states, by which he's referring to the slave states that had not joined the Confederacy, namely Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, and Delaware. Back to Greeley. Knowing well that the heartily, unconditionally loyal portion of the white citizens of those states do not expect nor desire that slavery shall be upheld to the prejudice of the Union, we ask you to consider that slavery is everywhere the inciting cause and sustaining base of treason, the most slave-holding sections of Maryland and Delaware being this day, though under the Union flag, in full sympathy with the rebellion, while the free labor portions of Tennessee and of Texas, though writhing under the bloody heel of treason, are unconquerably loyal to the Union. By the way, this is true, and also true of the counties of Virginia that would soon become West Virginia. To those who say the Civil War had absolutely nothing to do with slavery, there's a really, really strong correlation between individuals and areas of the South in which there was little or no slavery and Southerners who stayed loyal to the United States, and those individuals and areas where slavery was huge being the most drastically secessionist areas. Back to Greeley. It seems to us the most obvious truth that whatever strengthens or fortifies slavery in the border states strengthens also treason and drives home the wedge intended to divide the Union. So Greeley is saying that he thinks that by not explicitly moving more against slavery, Lincoln is somehow abetting or enabling the anti-Union sentiment within the border states, whereas Lincoln, I think, saw it the other way around. His slowness on this, at least in the eyes of Greeley and many other Northerners who were more abolitionist than Lincoln, Lincoln was in part being slow because of political considerations, his number one thing being trying to prevent secession from being successful, and part of that, trying to prevent any further states from joining the Confederacy. And so he's trying to coddle the border states a bit. And this is a lot of what Greeley is bashing him with here. Back to Greeley. We think timid counsels in such a crisis calculated to prove perilous and probably disastrous. For our government, even to seek after war has been made on it to dispel the affected apprehensions of armed traitors that their cherished privileges may be assailed by it is to invite insult and encourage hopes of its own downfall. We complain that the Union cause has suffered and is now suffering immensely from mistaken deference to rebel slavery. Had you, sir, in your inaugural address unmistakably given notice that in case the rebellion already commenced 
were persisted in, and your efforts to preserve the Union and enforce the laws should be resisted by armed force, you would recognize no loyal person as rightfully held in slavery by a traitor. We believe the rebellion would therein have received a staggering, if not fatal, blow. At that moment, according to the returns of the most recent elections, the Unionists were a large majority of the voters of the slave states. But they were composed in good part of the aged, the feeble, the wealthy, the timid. The young, the reckless, the aspiring, the adventurous had already been largely lured by the gamblers and negro traders, the politicians by trade, and the conspirators by instinct into the toils of treason. Had you then proclaimed that rebellion would strike the shackles from the slaves of every traitor, the wealthy and the cautious would have been supplied with a powerful inducement to remain loyal. As it was, every coward in the South soon became a traitor from fear, for loyalty was perilous while treason seemed comparatively safe. Hence the boasted unanimity of the South, a unanimity based on rebel terrorism and the fact that immunity and safety were found on that side, danger and probable death on ours. By the way, I'm just not buying this argument by Greeley, that by moving more strongly against slavery early on, more Southerners would have remained Unionist. I'm not really buying that. But anyway, back to Greeley. We complain that the Confiscation Act, which you approved, is habitually disregarded by your generals, and that no word of rebuke for them from you has yet reached the public ear. Fremont's proclamation and Hunter's order favoring emancipation were promptly annulled by you, while Halleck's number three, forbidding fugitives from slavery to rebels to come within his lines, an order as unmilitary as inhuman and which received the hearty approbation of every traitor in America with scores of like tendency have never provoked even your own remonstrance, which is true, by the way. We complain that the officers of your armies have habitually repelled rather than invited approach of slaves who would have gladly taken the risks of escaping from their rebel masters to our camps, bringing intelligence often of inestimable value to the Union cause. We complain that those who have thus escaped to us, avowing willingness to do for us whatever might be required, have been brutally and madly repulsed, and often surrendered to be scourged, maimed, and tortured by ruffian traitors who pretend to own them. This is true, by the way, a lot of the high levels of command in the Union Army at the time, including General McClellan, were not at all interested in receiving escape slaves or contrabands, as they were often called at the time, and sheltering them from recapture, and in some cases at least actively helped to return escape slaves to those claiming to be their owners. Back to Greeley. We complain that a large proportion of our regular army officers, with many of the volunteers, evince far more solicitude to uphold slavery than to put down the rebellion. And finally, we complain that you, Mr. President, elected as a Republican, knowing well what an abomination slavery is and how emphatically it is the core and essence of this atrocious rebellion, seem never to interfere with these atrocities and never give a direction to your military subordinates, which does not appear to have been conceived in the interest of slavery rather than of freedom. By the way, there's merit to most of what he's been saying here, at least up till this point in the war, which again is the late summer of 1862. In Greeley's final paragraph in this letter, I'll read to you. I close as I began with the statement that what an immense majority of the loyal millions of your countrymen require of you is a frank, undeclared, unqualified, ungrudging execution of the laws of the land, more especially of the Confiscation Act. 
That act gives freedom to the slaves of rebels coming within our lines, or whom those lines may at any time enclose. We ask you to render it due obedience by publicly requiring all your subordinates to recognize and obey it. As one of the millions who would gladly have avoided this struggle at any sacrifice but that of principle and honor, but who now feel that the triumph of the Union is indispensable not only to the existence of our country, but to the well-being of mankind, I entreat you to render a hearty and unequivocal obedience to the law of the land. Yours, Horace Greeley, New York, August 19, 1862. By the way, notice the grandiosity, which is a feature of... American narcissism all the way through to this day that it's the well-being of all mankind, what Team America does. Well, Lincoln's reply to Greeley was quite a bit shorter, and I'll read that to you. Executive Mansion, Washington, August 22, 1862. Honorable Horace Greeley. Dear Sir, I have just read yours of the 19th, addressed to myself through the New York Tribune. If there be in it any statements or assumptions of fact which I may know to be erroneous, I do not now and here controvert them. If there be perceptible in it an impatient and dictatorial tone, I wave it in deference to an old friend whose heart I have always supposed to be right. As to the policy I seem to be pursuing, as you say, I have not meant to leave anyone in doubt. I would save the Union." I would save it the shortest way under the Constitution. The sooner the national authority can be restored, the nearer the Union will be the Union as it was. If there be those who would not save the Union, unless they could at the same time save slavery, I do not agree with them. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union, and what I forbear, I forbear because I don't believe it would help to save the Union. I shall do less whenever I shall believe what I am doing hurts the cause, and I shall do more whenever I shall believe doing more will help the cause. I shall try to correct errors when shown to be error, and I shall adopt new views so fast as they shall appear to be true views. I have here stated my purpose according to my view of official duty, and I intend no modification of my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. Yours, A. Lincoln. However, even as he wrote that letter to Greeley, Lincoln had already decided that he would soon adopt a policy of declaring free any slaves who lived in places that were part of the Confederacy. But... Following the political advice of his Secretary of State, William Seward, he decided to not announce the policy until after the Union had won a major victory on the battlefield, because Seward said it would look like an act of desperation if he did it before a big victory happened. And in the spring and summer of 1862, things were going pretty well for the Confederacy on the battlefield. As we covered previously, Jackson had triumphed in the Shenandoah Valley, Lee had booted McClellan's massive army out of eastern Virginia, and also roughly around this time the Confederates had won the Second Battle of Bull Run. But then Antietam happened, 
And even though the Battle of Antietam was, in tactical terms, just a really, really bloody draw, it was legitimately a strategic win for the Union, because it ended Lee's invasion of Maryland, and certainly a lot of the northern press portrayed the battle as a huge one-sided Union victory. And as a result of that, many northern citizens saw it that way, so Lincoln decided that Antietam would be good enough of a victory for his purposes. In addition, there's the international angle, which I've not gotten into a huge amount so far, and which I might give a separate episode or part of an episode to in the future, the kind of diplomacy surrounding this conflict. But when Lee had invaded Maryland, the governments of Britain and France were considering some sort of diplomatic intervention into the conflict, which could potentially lead to their recognition of the Confederate government, which had all kinds of implications. And Lincoln hoped that a combination of the fact that Lee's invasion into Maryland had been stopped, plus the Emancipation Proclamation, those two things together would prevent Britain and France from going any further down the road towards diplomatic intervention into the conflict and possible recognition of the Confederacy. So, less than a week after the Battle of Antietam, Lincoln issued his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. It was issued September 22nd, 1862, and stated that on January 1st, 1863, it would go into effect, which it did. So I'll read you the text. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas on the 22nd day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States, containing, among other things, the following, to wit... That on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. That the executive will, on the first day of January aforesaid, by proclamation, designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which the people thereof, respectively, shall then be in rebellion against the United States. And the fact that any state or the people thereof shall on that day be in good faith, represented in the Congress of the United States by members chosen thereto, at elections, wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such state shall have participated, shall, in the absence of strong countervailing testimony, be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and the people thereof are not then in rebellion against the United States. Now, what all that basically means is he's saying that if any of the states that were currently part of the Confederacy in September of 1862 can, by the end of the year, throw in the towel on all that, have elections at which the voters have sworn allegiance to the United States, and then the voters then elect members of Congress, that essentially, if they kind of reconstruct themselves back into the Union, that this won't apply to them. So he's telling the Confederate states, hey, if you throw in the towel on this whole rebellion and independence thing, then you'll be exempted from the Emancipation Proclamation. So that's the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, and now this is what we get when you get to New Year's of 1863. 
Now therefore I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States, and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion, do on this day of January in the year of our Lord, 1,863, and in accordance with my purpose so to do publicly, proclaimed for the full period of 100 days." From the first above mentioned, order and designate as the states and parts of states, wherein the people thereof respectively are, this day in rebellion against the United States, the following to wit. Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, except the parishes of St. Bernard, Plaquemine, Jefferson, St. John's, St. Charles, St. James Ascension, Assumption, Terrebonne, La Fourche, St. Mary, St. Martin, and Orleans, including the city of New Orleans. Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia. Except the 48 counties designated as West Virginia, and also the counties of Berkeley, Accomack, Northampton, Elizabeth City, York, Princess Anne, and Norfolk, including the cities of Norfolk and Portsmouth, and which accepted parts are for the present left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. And by virtue of the power and for the purposes aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are and henceforward shall be free, and that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence, unless in necessary self-defense. Note, this clause is meant to explicitly discourage violent slave uprisings. However, many Southerners would see and portray the proclamation as encouraging a servile insurrection. And I just want to mention in my own episode a while back on the end of American slavery, this would have been episode 106. I believe I stated there somewhere in that episode that the proclamation was intended by the Lincoln administration to encourage violent slave uprisings. And I now no longer believe that. I don't see sufficient evidence for that. And the only thing I see is the one clause where he actually says to not do that. So I'm retracting that earlier statement from that episode in regard to that. But um, I do think it was intended to foster other forms of slave noncompliance, such as running away, that were intended to be disruptive. But I've not encountered any solid evidence that the Lincoln administration actually was hoping it would cause a massive violent uprising in the South, other than a bunch of Confederates saying that's what it was intended to do. But to me, that's not sufficient evidence to say that. I think that Lincoln was trying to cause a violent slave uprising. In fact, I think it would have been bad for him politically if that's what had happened, because a hell of a lot of Northerners who were supportive of the war up till then would have likely been driven away from supporting it at the thought of slaves violently rising up and killing white people. Because the vast majority of Northerners were, certainly by our standards today, quite racist. Whether or not they were against slavery, a lot of them were still racist even if they were opposed to slavery. So if you would have had like a Haitian-style massive uprising of black slaves against white people throughout the South, I think a lot of Northerners would have actually supported using some of the Union military to put that down, if nothing else, out of a sense of racial solidarity, which was a real thing at the time. There were a lot of Northerners who were really, really put off even by the Emancipation Proclamation as it read, which explicitly said 
that the people now being declared free should not use violence. Anyway, back to the document, and I recommend to them that in all cases when allowed, they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed services of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. That was really controversial to many Northerners and, of course, to almost all Southerners. Back to the document. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. In witness thereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Done at the city of Washington this first day of January, in the year of our Lord 1863, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 87th, by the President, Abraham Lincoln, William H. Seward, Secretary of State. So, yeah, when the Confederacy, not surprisingly, didn't throw in the towel and reconstruct themselves at the end of 1862, the proclamation went into effect on New Year's Day of 1863. So I'm going to talk for a bit about the controversies both at the time and through to this day surrounding the Emancipation Proclamation. It is not as simple of a thing as you might think if you've never really studied it. And one historian that I think does a very good job of discussing the complexity of the Emancipation Proclamation, and in particular how it just sort of amped up the war, the violence, the destruction even further on both sides, is historian Harry S. Stout, whose book, Upon the Altar of the Nation, I've referred to already in, in this Civil War series a few times, and it's a great book. Despite the fact that he's a little bit softer on Lincoln at times than I would be, I have to say overall it's a great book that sort of charts how the two sides in the war, both sides, never really thought deeply about questions such as means and ends and what's justified and whether or not there could be some sort of compromise on certain issues and how much bloodshed and destruction their goals really, you know, were worth. So anyway, in his book, Upon the Altar of the Nation, Harry S. Stout writes of the Emancipation Proclamation, quote, Despite its place in American memory as America's abolition declaration, the Emancipation Proclamation was hardly an abolitionist document. But that did not stop either side in the conflict from effectively and intentionally misreading the proclamation as a new and revolutionary document. In that deliberate misreading, Northern abolitionists created a self-fulfilling prophecy. But whatever the popular interpretation, coercive universal emancipation was not what Lincoln intended by his proclamation. End quote. And later on, Stout points out, quote, The opposition of Lincoln, his generals, and his administration to the rhetoric of slave insurrection offers perhaps the strongest confirmation that, contrary to American memory, the Civil War was not at all an abolitionist war, let alone a war for racial equality. End quote. And that's a very important point, that last quote that I read from Stout, because... People often, whether they realize they're doing it or not, when they look back at something like the American Civil War, some big complicated historical thing, they tend to kind of lose a sense of the order in which things occurred and how much that actually matters to figuring out what really happened and why. 
And so what I mean by that is people will look back at the Civil War, and because the war ultimately ended with the abolition of slavery in the United States, then map onto the Union side and Lincoln in particular, that that was their master plan all along, that they were intending to abolish slavery. That was their real goal. And they just had to sort of play possum and act like they cared about this Union thing more than they did about the slaves for a while until it was politically expedient to show their real master plan of, of a war for abolition, which there's no reason to believe that whatsoever and tons of evidence to the contrary. And so because people do this historical, I don't know, voodoo or alchemy or something, where because the ending of slavery in the United States was one effect of the Civil War, they then impute intention onto Lincoln and the Union government that was not necessarily there. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't certain diehard abolitionists, even a few members of Congress in this category, that from day one believed that the war should be about abolishing slavery and that that should be done as quickly as possible. I'm not saying there weren't some people in the press and even a few in Congress who were saying that. I'm just saying that when you look at Lincoln, his generals, much of the top level of the Republican Party during the war, that it's simply not correct that their intention in starting this war was to abolish slavery. And it certainly wasn't any form of racial equality, which Lincoln himself was opposed to in most cases. He thought that the slaves should be freed, but on the other hand, he thought once they were freed, they should preferably, as many of them, be deported um, out of the United States as possible to some tropical location, because after all, that's what they're, that's where they're supposed to live, according to the kind of racial theorizing of the time period. And that certainly any who did, despite his best efforts, remain in the United States should not be given what we would think of as full citizenship rights. That's something that's passed later after the war by certain members of Congress who were more radical than Lincoln on race relations. And it's also in part motivated by the Republican Party's desire to have a lot of voters in the South, which after the Civil War, that basically meant you had to make sure blacks could vote because very few white Southerners would have voted for the Republican Party. But anyway, that's a different story altogether. So anyway, Stout goes on to say that the proclamation had more in common with Lincoln's blockade of the Southern coastline than it did with the 13th Amendment that ended slavery in the U.S. and that didn't go into effect until about three years later three years after the Emancipation Proclamation, I mean. So yeah, the proclamation was a war measure in that light, similar to the imposition of the blockade. Lincoln did repeatedly say he opposed slavery, so we have to assume that he meant that, but he was not an abolitionist. And in fact, many abolitionists disliked him. We heard from Horace Greeley attacking him in August of 1862 for being way too moderate and catering too much to border state slave owners. And in fact, as late as 1862, Lincoln voiced his support to Congress of a plan to implement a gradual ending to slavery in which slave owners would be compensated financially. And if I remember correctly, this plan that he proposed would have phased out slavery between the 1860s and I believe 1900. So it was something much closer to what the original northern states had done in the decades right after the American Revolution, which I talked about way back in one of my History of American Slavery episodes. Now, again, 
With all this, we have to understand the proclamation was simply a war measure, not an end to slavery. And I bet you, if you were to walk up to just random people on the street, even if you tried to tried to sort just for people who seemed fairly educated and literate, and you asked them to briefly describe what the Emancipation Proclamation was, what it did, they would probably say something along the lines of, oh, that's where Lincoln freed all the slaves. And that's simply incorrect. But that's what people believe. And in American perceptions of history, just like in American perceptions of current events and current politics, image and rhetoric trump reality and vague, hazy perceptions that are not based on the cold, hard facts are way more important if they're widely accepted than the cold, hard facts themselves. Lincoln later wrote of his decision to go for the Emancipation Proclamation, quote, Things had gone from bad to worse until I felt that we had reached the end of the rope on the plan of operations we had been pursuing, that we had about played our last card and must change our tactics or lose the game, end quote. Now, aside from all the mixed metaphors in that statement, it again reveals to you that it was in large part because the war at that point wasn't going that well for the Union that he decided to do this. So again, this is a war measure, and therefore Lincoln was arguing that he could do this without Congress because he was citing his powers as commander-in-chief during a time of rebellion, and so he didn't believe that he could free the slaves everywhere. In other words, even in the slave states that had remained in the Union, that he could only do it in the states that were actively part of the rebellion. So it's important to stress what the proclamation did not do. It didn't outlaw slavery or offer citizenship or equal rights to black people in America, and it didn't at all even theoretically affect the, I think, approximately half a million slaves who lived in that time in the so-called border states, the slave states that had stayed in the Union, namely Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri, and Delaware. Instead, it was declaring free precisely, for the most part, slaves beyond the reach at that point in the war of Union forces. And various people pointed this out, some European newspapers, but even Secretary of State William Seward within Lincoln's own cabinet said of the proclamation the day after it was issued, quote, We show our sympathy with slavery by emancipating slaves where we cannot reach them and holding them in bondage where we can set them free. End quote. Lincoln had actually tried earlier in the year and failed to get the border state politicians in D.C., for the most part, on board for a gradual compensated emancipation scheme for the border states. And in fact, two of the border states would end slavery within their state prior to the end of the war, but two, and I want to say it's Kentucky and Delaware, but I could be wrong on that, would actually hold out until the 13th Amendment was implemented and abolish slavery throughout the United States. By the way, D.C. had had slavery abolished within it in, I believe, the spring of 1862 by an act of Congress, which included financial compensation for D.C. slave owners. So it's important to understand the limitations of this document. That said, many people have been incorrect, including myself in years past, in saying that the proclamation freed no slaves whatsoever at the time that it was implemented, that it was issued. And it actually did free a fair number of slaves, certainly a small percentage of the whole, but it wasn't nothing. It actually did free at least about 20,000 slaves and possibly as many as 50,000 slaves who were in 
Union-held areas of the Confederate states that were not among those explicitly exempted counties and parishes mentioned in the proclamation. And so whether by kind of accident default or whether deliberately, there were a few places that were not exempted in which the Union was in control. And I believe it was mostly some coastal areas of the Deep South that were not listed as among the exempted areas. I believe there were some coastal areas of Georgia and the Carolinas, maybe even Florida and a few other places on the Gulf that were not excluded where the Union actually was occupying certain towns and areas, and where as a result there were some slaves who got their freedom right on New Year's 1863. And of course, you can't throw out the proclamation entirely from the perspective of freeing large numbers of slaves, because of course, as the war ground on, and as the Union forces conquered new areas of the Confederacy over the course of the war, the proclamation would result in the freeing of millions of slaves. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe three million or a bit more. Most abolitionists, including free black activists like Frederick Douglass and people such as Horace Greeley and other white abolitionists who had been criticizing Lincoln for not making abolition a priority, they acknowledged the proclamation's shortcomings for sure, but they did also welcome it because they saw it as at least a step in the right direction. Now, I'm going to talk a bit about how the proclamation affected kind of different groups and different aspects of those involved indirectly or directly in the war. Initially, the proclamation had the effect of unifying Southerners, of course, in opposition to it, and dividing Northerners because a fair number of Northerners were completely not on board for the idea. Although over time, the North became more unified over the idea. And basically what happened was, over time, a lot of Northerners who were not really abolitionists and were in fact, by our standards especially, quite racist, over time came to accept the idea of ending slavery as part of the war because they became convinced one way or another that slavery was the root cause for why the South had turned against the Union in the first place. And so they saw ending slavery not as an end in itself, but as a means by which to remove what they had come to believe was the original ultimate cause for the South wanting to exit the Union in the first place. Certainly in the North, the proclamation was universally condemned by Northern Democrats, both factions of the party at the time. There were the War Democrats who supported the Union war effort and the Peace Democrats, or sometimes derisively called Copperheads, who wanted some sort of negotiated settlement with the South. And one of the few things during this time period that unified both war and peace Democrats was opposition to the Emancipation Proclamation. They flat out excoriated Lincoln for it. And this extended to the ranks of the Union Army, which included many Northern Democrats in it, and also border state Democrats, and even a fair number of high-ranking Union military commanders were Democrats. Historian James McPherson writes, quote, While Northern soldiers had no love for slavery, most of them had no love for slaves either. They fought for Union and against treason. Only a minority in 1862 felt any interest in fighting for black freedom. End quote. Now, we do have letters, so we know that there were 
members of the Union Army who were in their heart abolitionists, who really saw that from very early on as the goal of the war and the reason for the war, but they seem to have been a distinct minority. One Union private, who would later be killed in combat, wrote in a letter to his mother shortly after the proclamation was issued, quote, There are a good many voters learning something as well as I am, who did not come out here to fight on the nigger question, but for the union of the U.S. and for the protection of the capital and the Constitution, end quote. And there are many other examples of letters from Union soldiers expressing similar sentiments. And they certainly had no problem dropping the N-bomb. But like I said, over time, many in the Union Army, even those who were quite hostile to abolitionism and who were pretty darn racist, came to support emancipation in the war necessity terms in which Lincoln had framed it. In other words, as a way to weaken the enemy by disrupting his economy and society. And also, as I said before, many of them became convinced over the next few years that the ultimate cause of Southern secession was slavery. And so they felt they had to remove that in order to prevent the South from wanting to try to secede again or something like that. General George McClellan, who was a Northern Democrat and who certainly had no love for blacks and who had consistently opposed interfering with the institution of slavery when he was leading the Army of the Potomac in the South, eventually did issue a statement telling his army that in America, the military needed to obey the civil authority. So, you know, they should carry out Lincoln's order because he's the president. However, he did also say that any Union soldiers who thought that this policy was a mistake should seek to remedy it via the polls. And a couple years later, McClellan himself is going to be the Democratic Party's nominee for president against his former boss, Abraham Lincoln. While, of course, many abolitionists welcomed the proclamation, the northern public in general was more divided and more problematic on the issue. And many openly opposed the idea of making this into a war to emancipate black slaves. And there's lots of evidence for this. Among the most dramatic, there were anti-black riots that occurred in at least a half dozen northern cities shortly after the issuing of the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in 1862. And some of the worst violence occurred in Cincinnati and in Brooklyn and also in some areas of Illinois. Catholic Archbishop John Hughes chimed in on the matter, saying, quote, We Catholics and a vast majority of our brave troops in the field have not the slightest idea of carrying on a war that costs so much blood and treasure just to gratify a clique of abolitionists, end quote. And Lincoln's own state of Illinois, which had some of the harshest anti-black laws on the books of any northern state, saw riots as well. And also the state legislature there passed a resolution condemning the Emancipation Proclamation. So no love for their favorite son in the White House, I suppose. But Illinois had always been an interesting state in that era as far as the southern parts of the state were culturally more southern and the northern parts of the state were culturally more kind of like New England descended people who had moved in there. So not surprising that it was a very divisive place. Lincoln himself still maintained that the best way to have emancipation without having race problems was colonization of free and freed blacks outside of the United States. 
In fact, he invited some free black leaders to the White House on August 14, 1862, which I believe he was the first president to invite a group of black people into the White House for a meeting. And that's all well and good. But what went down at the meeting is quite interesting, because at the meeting, he told them, quote, Your race suffer very greatly, many of them, by living among us, while ours suffer from your presence. There is an unwillingness on the part of our people, harsh as it may be, for you free-colored people to remain among us. I do not mean to discuss this, but to propose it as a fact with which we have to deal. I cannot alter it if I would. End quote. And it's kind of interesting because Lincoln, who's often held up as this wonderful progressive force on racial matters, sounds in statements like this and many of the things he said in, for example, the Lincoln-Douglas debates and so on, sounds a lot more like the more far-out members of the alt-right than he does like some sort of progressive in the, you know, not ideological, but just in like making things better sense of a, oh, I don't know, what's the term I'm looking for? Someone who's trying to improve race relations and equality and all that. So Lincoln urged these black leaders to leave the United States and to encourage other free blacks to do the same. And one of them responded, quote, this is our country as much as it is yours and we will not leave it, end quote. Which is a valid point considering how many of these black Americans their ancestors had been in North America since the earliest white settler, some of them at least. And in fact, many of these black Americans of that time period had had their family tree in North America, not voluntarily, of course, but it had their family tree in North America for as long or longer as many of the white Americans of that time period, many of whom were immigrants and the sons of immigrants and so on who had come much more recently. So I can certainly understand their feeling of like, hey, you know, we've we've been here as long as anybody and you can't just kick us out because you find us inconvenient. Frederick Douglass, for his part, I don't think he was part of this meeting, although I could be wrong about that, but he certainly heard of it. And when he did condemn Lincoln's remarks and said they would likely encourage white races to commit more violence against free blacks. And Lincoln's own Treasury Secretary, Salmon Chase, who, like Lincoln's Secretary of State William Seward, had a longer track record of being much more opposed to slavery than Lincoln did, wrote that he thought it would be much better to simply give freed slaves homes in America, rather than trying to ship them to South America or Africa or wherever it was. Now, in terms of the proclamation's effects on the South, a lot of this is quite predictable. It did harm the South in so much as as the proclamation became known as word of it spread amongst the slave population in the Confederate states, it did cause more slaves to run away. And this, of course, disrupted the South's economy, which, of course, was already being disrupted in countless ways by the war, including by slave owners moving their slaves away from their plantations when Union armies were approaching throughout the conflict and this, of course, is wrecking the base of the South's economy, which is plantation agriculture of staple crops. The proclamation also, not surprisingly, made most Southerners go ballistic and characterize the proclamation, especially its call for enlisting blacks in the Union military, as absolutely satanic and as proof of Lincoln's satanic nature. And I'm sure some of this will come up, some of this rhetoric, when I do a future episode talking about motivations of different factions on either side in fighting this war. But just to give you a few examples, 
In his message to Congress on January 12, 1863, Confederate President Jefferson Davis condemned the Emancipation Proclamation as, quote, the most execrable measure in the history of guilty man, end quote. Davis also stated that he would treat any white officers in the Union Army found commanding black troops as if they had been involved in instigating a slave uprising, which would carry the death penalty. Now, this was never carried out systematically by the Confederate government, but certainly there are lots of incidents of no quarter being given both to black soldiers and to the white officers commanding them. The Richmond Daily Dispatch published an editorial that said, quote, Lincoln's proclamation changes nothing. This has been an abolitionist war from the beginning, end quote. And that's an interesting thing that you see in a lot of editorials and speeches in the aftermath of the proclamation, where a lot of Southern leaders and writers were saying basically, yeah, we kind of believed all along this was Lincoln's master plan. Historian Harry Stout writes, quote, The South had promulgated the myth that the Civil War was waged solely for emancipation so vigorously that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation did not have quite the symbolic effect on them that it did in the North but it did mean all-or-nothing war, end quote. And Southerners very strongly believed that the proclamation was intended to cause a violent slave uprising, despite the statement to the contrary that was contained in the proclamation itself. Now, as far as its effects on the slaves themselves, for the near term, for most slaves, life went on pretty much about the same as it had been before in the Confederate territories. Very little violence seems to have occurred on the part of slaves against their masters. Instead, what really happened was the incidence of running away to Union lines increased continuously over the rest of the war. It's unlikely that the, for the most part, abstention from violence on the part of slaves was due to them having read Lincoln's proclamation and having heeded his cause and they're saying they shouldn't use violence. It's more likely that the reason why few slaves, even after the proclamation, would use violence, the reason why they wouldn't is simply because they understood that that was the most risky thing you could do. That was why, for the most part, while slavery existed, violent slave uprisings were shockingly rare considering what you would expect and it's because the slaves they may have been very uneducated deliberately so by their owners but they weren't idiots and they certainly understood that violent rebellion carried with it the most risks and the very slimmest chances of success and so slaves had always been more likely to use other forms of resistance oftentimes more subtle based more on stealth and evasion and that sort of thing. And these forms of resistance, so, like I said, these nonviolent forms of resistance, which had always been the most common forms of slave resistance, increased from all the evidence we have. And since so many of the South's young and middle-aged male population was away fighting the war, there were fewer and fewer available on the home front, so to speak, to do things like catch runaways and punish slaves for relatively minor infractions like work slowdowns and insubordination and so on. Jeffrey Hummel writes, quote, In the final analysis, it was not military conquest, but the fugitive slave who brought down the South's peculiar institution. Liberation, so often presented as something the Union did for blacks, was as much something they did for themselves, end quote. And I did talk a bit about this in my History of American Slavery series when I talked about the ending of slavery during and after the Civil War that it wasn't like they were entirely passive, simply waiting for their white liberators in blue, in blue outfits to come save them. 
But it is important to point out that black enlistments in the U.S. military were significant as well, and approximately 200,000 served in the Union Army and Navy over the remainder of the war. And a majority of those who did so came from just a few areas of the Confederacy, honestly, from plantations along the Mississippi River and from a lot of the coastal areas of the South. Which makes sense, because these were some of the earliest areas to get large amounts of Union troops taking over. The U.S. Navy had allowed men of all colors into it since the beginning of the war, if not earlier, but the state militias and the U.S. Army that was kind of built on top of that had not allowed men of color in its ranks until this time. And it was very controversial, both among many Northerners and, of course, amongst virtually all Southerners. Now, for more on the proclamation's effects and the end of slavery and its legacy, listen to the final episode in my History of American Chattel Slavery series, which I will link to in the show notes for this episode. Again, I want to state that I no longer believe what I said there about the proclamation being deliberately intended to spark violence on the parts of slaves in the South. I said that really without sufficient research into that question at the time. And now at this point, I do believe it was... Not intended to cause that, but it was simply intended to be disruptive to the Southern economy and society, which I think it clearly was. Now, abroad, the effects of the proclamation were very important, and America's ambassador to Britain reported back the important effect this had on a lot of key people in the British government of dissuading them from toying any further with the idea of helping out the Confederacy or recognizing it or anything like that. And I'll probably do an episode or at least a partial, you know, part of a larger episode at some point in this series, getting into much more detail about the international aspects of this conflict. But for now, I'll just say that across the Atlantic, for sure, not everyone saw the Emancipation Proclamation in the idealistic, hallowed light that most Americans, ignorant of the historical details about it, hold it in today. And so we have lots of examples of various people and publications in places like the UK seeing through to the limitations of the proclamation. So, for example, a London Spectator editorial famously wrote of the proclamation, quote, The principle is not that a human being cannot justly own another, but that he cannot own him unless he is loyal to the United States, end quote. And the London Times said, quote, where he has no power, Mr. Lincoln will set the Negroes free. Where he retains power, he will consider them as slaves. End quote. Now that said, despite the fact that certain elements of the European press pointed out the proclamation's limits and shortcomings, it definitely was a factor in dissuading European governments, who had, I think, by this point, pretty much all abolished slavery in their empires by this time, from being willing to overtly aid the Confederate cause in any major way. Now, I want to wrap up my discussion about the Emancipation Proclamation by talking more about how it linked in to the increasing turn toward total war in every sense of the term total war. And again, a great place to get a lot more of this is the book Upon the Altar of the Nation by Harry S. Stout. He writes, very insightfully of the connection between emancipation on the one hand and the ever-increasing total war on both sides on the other hand. So, stringing together some different passages from Stout into one big blob, let me just share with you some of this to give you a sense of what he argues in this book. Quote, 
By Lincoln's calculation, the killing must continue on ever grander scales. But for that to succeed, the people must be persuaded to shed the blood without reservations. This, in turn, required a moral certitude that the killing was just. Only emancipation would provide such certitude. No longer would the war be fought just to preserve the Union, and certainly not the Union as it was. Henceforth, it would be a much bigger war, one that would reweave the South's social fabric in a revolutionary way and ensure that postbellum America would be radically different from antebellum America. The slaveholding class would exist no longer, and they would react strongly as they recognized that their way of life was at issue. With tens of thousands of bodies already in the grave, they would most likely call for total war on all fronts, no matter what the consequences, no surrender. Lincoln was prepared to take this risk because he had already himself determined on a course of total war as the only solution to entrenched Confederate nationalism. In those terms, emancipation decisively furthered the draconian military course he had already set. Emancipation legitimated and promoted an escalation of the war on the battlefields and the southern home fronts like no action could. End quote. And I think that's a very good point. It's very interesting because Stout isn't saying that Lincoln decided to make it a war of emancipation and then eventually adopted total war as a means to achieve the end of emancipation. But rather, Stout is saying, this is, I think, a very important point, that Lincoln first decided that he would use total war and then adopted emancipation as a means to achieve total war. So, like many U.S. presidents since, Lincoln had gone to war for one stated purpose, but when things got problematic under those auspices, he simply started to change what the purpose of the war was from what he'd been saying about it for the first you know, year and a half in this case. And Lincoln's apologists in later years have contended that his master plan was to end slavery all along, which ironically is what many Confederates believed at the time. Though in reality, the facts are pretty clear that if Lincoln had succeeded in squashing the rebellion prior to, say, mid-1862, it would have been without any major moves being made against slavery where it already existed. But since he'd been unable to squash the rebellion up till that point, he used emancipation as a way to amp up the conflict, which he wanted to amp up the conflict anyway, and the Emancipation Proclamation kind of gave him the purpose. Now, it didn't work right away to legitimate what he wanted to do, but over time, it gave everyone in support of the Union War effort the feeling that God was truly on their side, that they were pure good and that their enemies were pure evil, and this made it easier for them to go along with total war and things like Sherman's march through Georgia and the Carolinas and all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, the proclamation for the Confederate side did the same because you had the slave-owning oligarchy, who of course didn't want their entire economic system to go away, and also the white masses of the South, who mostly did not own slaves because they couldn't afford them but who had been born and raised in an atmosphere in which the ideology of white supremacy and black subservience was just everywhere. And we have letters to show they truly believed that 
Not only did Lincoln and the North want to abolish slavery everywhere immediately, but that they had all these other crazy plans of, you know, making your sister marry black dudes and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so the point is the Emancipation Proclamation amped up the hysteria on both sides. It did so in the South more quickly right away, and in the North it kind of took root a little more slowly. It was a little more divisive at first, but over time it gave many in the North the sense that they were pure good. So if you're pure good and fighting on the side of God, as Bob Dylan says in the song, you don't count the dead when God's on your side. And the South felt like they were trying to save not just their economic system, but their entire society and civilization from all these dastardly plans they believe that the Northern abolitionists had for them. A lot of the Northern press, including especially those elements of the abolitionist press who were not among the pacifists, there were pacifist abolitionists, and then there were the not-pacifist abolitionists. Well, the non-pacifists in particular played an important role in linking emancipation to the idea of warfare without limits. A New York abolitionist named William R. Williams wrote, quote, Since the object of a just war is to suppress injustice and compel justice, we have a right to put in practice against our enemy every measure that will tend to weaken or disable him from maintaining his injustice. To this end, we are at liberty to choose any and all such methods as we may deem most efficacious, end quote. And this sort of rhetoric and mindset has since become just an absolute classic, archetypical American approach to conflict. If we believe our cause is just and pure good and our enemy pure evil, then by definition, any means we choose to employ are automatically justified, no matter how violent and destructive they might be. So, I would argue this is the same mindset that resulted in things such as the firebombings of Tokyo and Dresden and the A-bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It is, I think, also the same mindset that says it's okay to kill dozens of totally innocent people, just random bystanders in the wrong place. It's okay to kill them in order to take out one guy that we think, based on some really shaky intelligence, might, maybe, be a terrorist. It's a difference between do you base morality on the actions or on the actor? And if you think my side is pure good and just and God's on our side and blah, 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 then by definition, anything your side does is good and justified. Even if it's something that if another government did, you would immediately condemn as evil and uncivilized and barbarous and horrible. But they're not you. They're not the chosen ones who can do whatever they want in pursuit of their obviously self-evident wonderful goals. Some of the most aggressive Northerners also struck the classic American notes of putting the fate of the entire planet on the United States' shoulders. So, for example, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner said in a speech about the Emancipation Proclamation in October 1862, quote, The war which we wage is not merely for ourselves, it is for all mankind. In saving the Republic, we shall save civilization. To die for country is pleasant and honorable, but all who die for country now die also for humanity. Wherever they lie in bloody fields, they will be remembered as heroes through whom the Republic was saved and civilization established forever. End quote. And Lincoln, in his own State of the Union message to Congress in December of that year, echoed these sentiments when he said things such as, quote, 
we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth, end quote. And as Harry Stout comments on this speech by Lincoln, quote, total war was regrettable, but not as regrettable as sacrificing the world's last best hope, end quote. So many leaders in the North were saying that if they let the South have their independence, that it would cause ultimately the Union to not have a republic, which I still think that's a ridiculous argument. But just because an argument is ridiculous and illogical doesn't mean that people won't fervently believe it and even fight and die for it. And you can see this sentiment first coming out of a lot of the leaders in the North, in the government and in the press, and then over time, you find it regurgitated back out in letters from common soldiers. It's very similar to to today to when you hear some random dude on the street saying something about politics and you're like, oh, that's the thing that they were saying on Fox News or on MSNBC a few months ago. And now you're barfing back those talking points. And so you have these common soldiers within the Union Army who are the cannon fodder of this whole thing, saying in letters to loved ones, we assume they're expressing their true beliefs and opinions, saying things like, well, I've got to go fight the South because if they're allowed to have their independence, it's going to cause there to no longer be any republics in North America, and then that'll be bad for the world because Europe will no longer have us to be their model to look to for Republican government, small r, and for freedom and liberty. And so ultimately, people were convinced in the North, not everybody, of course, but many, including many of the soldiers, were convinced that they were fighting for the cause of freedom for all of planet Earth, which is crazy, but how much crazier is it than believing that the United States has been in Afghanistan for 16 years to protect the freedom of the American people, or that the United States invaded Iraq in 2003 to protect the freedom of the American people? How is it any more ridiculous than those arguments? Now, with rhetoric like this and also equally increasingly amped up rhetoric in the South, the stage was set for even more escalation of carnage. And no one in positions of power on either side seemed ready to ask any important questions about things like justness and proportionality when it came to means versus ends. People are willing to inflict some nasty shit on other people when they think they're doing it for their country. And if you get them to believe that they're saving the fate of the world, it can only get worse.
If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is
Shall be his footstool and the soul.